You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. We're calling Legalism to Liberty. With this week's message, here's chaplain Reggie Coe. Growing up, I had several athletic competitions that I tried to excel in, but failed. One particular one was football. My uncle was a high school football coach, and in the early 60s, he sent me a pair of soccer shoes. I believe the brand was Puma. Now, guys playing football back in the early 60s, they were wearing those clunky, heavy, high top, and he sent me a pair of Puma soccer shoes. And I just knew that the, I mean, they were awesome. They were lightweight. They had a molded rubber sole with little cleats in them. And here's what I was sure of. They were going to make me run faster and be a better athlete. The problem is they didn't do that. No matter how hard I worked at playing football, those shoes did not make me faster. And almost every day after school, we lived across the street from the elementary school and there was a big field and guys would get together after school and we'd play football. As a matter of fact, almost every one of my birthdays in my elementary years, my mom would say, Reggie, what kind of birthday party do you want? Well, I want a football birthday party. So she didn't have to do anything. Just invite my friends and we'd go across the street and we'd play football and then she'd, she did have ice cream and cake. But... Um, not, not to diss on my mom. Uh, she, but, but anyway, so we, were, we would play football. And here's the problem. I was never good enough or fast enough or strong enough to be very, really very good at football. When I got into junior high, I kind of stopped trying. The doctor said I had a little heart murmur. And it was probably God's way of protecting me from embarrassing myself further. <laughs> And so um, I, didn't, I didn't continue uh, playing. I worked with the athletic teams in a different capacity. But you know the definition of insanity is trying, is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And I was sure that if I just worked hard enough, I'd eventually become a great football player. I needed somebody like Dr. Phil in my life who would have asked me the Dr. Phil question. How's that working for you? And so um, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a place where you've tried the same thing over and over and never getting different results. In our walk with the Lord, there is a trap that the enemy sets for us to fall into. And that is this. It was championed by the Judaizers in Galatia And the trap's this, you only become who the Lord calls you to be through your own energy, through your own dedicated self-effort. Your ability to please Christ relies on your efforts and your determination. And this view of the Christian life, which we have termed in this series called sin management, is discouraging so many Christians. Because the truth is, we can't do enough. We can't love enough. 
We can't give enough. We can't do all the things that we're supposed to do. When I came back to the Lord after my senior year in high school, between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, um, that summer, I came back to the Lord. Whether it's I came to the Lord, I had trusted the Lord as an eight-year-old. I don't know if that was just because my best friend that morning had gone down the aisle and then that evening I went down the aisle because that was my grandfather's church and, you know, I'm eight years old and, man, I better get up there. If you've ever had that pressure, welcome to the club. But I don't know if that's why I trust Christ or when I came back to him. I was pretty rough in high school. Dad and mom divorced. Dad pretty much abandoned us. And I just didn't have much of a role model, so I just went hog wild. At the end of my senior year in high school, two of my best friends trusted Christ. And eventually they led me back to a faith relationship with Jesus. When I got to college, I wanted to be all that God wanted me to be. And I got into this system of a plan that depended on my own dedicated self-effort to become the person that God wanted me to be. I believe that each day I must read so much of the Bible every day, that I must pray so much every day, and that I must witness to so many people every day, that if I wasn't doing these things, I wasn't becoming who God wanted me to be. And I want to tell you, if you've ever been there, you know how discouraging that is. I would like to say I've conquered that struggle that I don't feel like I have to do that, but sometimes I have to face the pressure of trying to please God through my own abilities, not grasping at that moment when I fall into that, that he's already pleased because of what Christ did. He's already pleased because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And his goal for me is not to have pleasing as my first um, effort. What he wants, according to Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it's impossible to please him. What pleases him is not my dedicated self-effort. It's trusting him to do whatever he wants to do in and through my life. And just like my dedicated efforts to become a great athlete never worked, sin management and mixing law and grace never worked for me and they don't work for you. The Lord designed the Christian life to begin by believing in Christ by grace through faith. And he desires that we continue our walk with him by believing in Christ by grace through faith. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3 and we'll begin reading at verse 15. Paul calls us back to understand the Old Test Older Testament promise that God made with Abraham as a clear example of how we come to know God and how we walk with him. The law that came later did not invalidate the truth of how Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So let's begin reading in chapter three, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made co man covenant, no one annuls it or adds it adds to it once it has been ratified. 
Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, inheritance, this rich relationship with God now and in the future, if that comes through the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What we see in Roman numeral one is the fact that the law, <clears throat> excuse me, came after the promise given to Abraham didn't change the fact that the Lord responds to faith in him and in his promises. In chapter three and verse 15, just to read it again, to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now keep your place here in Galatians three, we're coming back, but go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and let's look at chapter 15. God has made Abraham a promise in Genesis 12, but he hasn't ratified that promise into a covenant until Genesis 15. Here's what he says. He's made this promise. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you a seed and I'm going to make you a blessing. Notice what he says in um, in verse two, Abraham said, how are you gonna do this? I'm childless, I'm old, how are you gonna do this? How about just letting this servant of mine be the one that you fulfill your promise to? And so let's begin in verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man, your servant, shall not be your heir. And he brought him outside and brought him and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Abraham was an old man with no children and his wife was a mature woman <laughs> and they had no children and she was past the childbearing years. And God said, you're gonna have descendants that you won't even be able to count. Now we know later that he kind of wrongly had an intimate relationship with Hagar, Sarah's servant, and she bore Ishmael. And from Ishmael came all the people that we understand as Middle Easterners. And then he had Isaac. And Isaac, out of Isaac came the whole nation of Israel. Count the stars. Um, notice in verse six what Abraham did. So Abraham walked out and he looked at the stars of heaven and God said, I'm going to fulfill the promises that I've made to you. And he believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. There wasn't a work. There wasn't a set of behaviors. All God asked Abraham to do was to believe in him. Trust that I'm going to do this for you. And Abraham walked out and looked at that panoply of stars and he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and he set the pace for what we know God wants for each one of us is to place our faith in him. 
And when we place our faith in his promise, now that promise has become much more clear to us. It was in its infancy stage with Abraham. It matured, and now it's faith in the promise of Christ that when he died and rose again, he did that for us. Abraham believed the Lord. It provided a righteousness not based on works, but on faith. And notice in verses 15 through 22 that God ratifies this. The way you ratified a covenant in that culture, two men would make a covenant or two individuals. They'd make a covenant, an agreement with each other to do whatever they're agreeing to. And they would take animals and sacrifice them and lay them apart with a path between the uh, pieces of the animal. And what they would typically do is both of those individuals making that covenant would walk through those pieces together, maybe even holding hands, indicating that each of them would fulfill their part of the covenant. Notice what happens in verse 12. Abraham has sacrificed these animals and laid them both apart so he and God could walk through this together. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. You ever had a night like that? Just, oh. And here's what happened. The Lord said to Abram in his sleep, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there, and they will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. He's prophesying their um, journey into Egypt. And once they go to Egypt, they'll stay there for about 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Remember the 10 uh, plagues that Moses brought, the last one being the death of the firstborn. He said, I'll bring um, judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. If you read that incident, the people of Egypt were so ready to get rid of these Israelites and Moses and all that that they gave them all their wealth, and they just walked out wealthy people. As for you, you shall go to your father in fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, which he was kind of already at a pretty good age. He said, you're going to live longer. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, that 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Notice verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And where was Abraham? He was asleep. The flaming torch and the smoking fire pot are visual pictures of the glory of God. In other words, Abraham laid out the pieces. God kind of put him to sleep. And after he'd reiterated this covenant that he would make with Abraham, God passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. In other words, this is gonna be your land. The Abrahamic covenant was a three tiered covenant. It promised Abraham three things. 
The first thing it promised him is land, that they were going to have, his descendants would have this great land. And what we would say is that land has never been fully possessed by the people of the nation of Israel. That never had, God has not fully yet fulfilled that promise. It's ratified or amplified in the um, Palestinian covenant where God reiterates and gives some more of those specific uh, perimeters of what that land would be. He promised him land. He promised him seed. And the seed, as we'll see, ultimately looks at the person of Christ. It is amplified, if you look at the chart, in the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, is a covenant that God made with David saying, I'm going to give you a descendant who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. We'll see in just a minute that the fulfillment of that seed aspect rested in the person of Christ. And the last one was that he would <clears throat> make Abraham a blessing. That covenant is amplified in the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, in De Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God says that I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to cleanse your hearts. I'm going to write my standards on your heart and give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a new covenant. That new covenant will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ returns at the second coming to the nation of Israel. But here's the benefit we get. Remember when Christ established the Lord's table? And he took the bread, said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take this as often as you would in remembrance of me. Remember what he said about the cup? This cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Take as often as you would in remembrance of me. So we, even though we're not a part of the nation of Israel, we're part of the church. The church gets to benefit from some of the spiritual aspects of the new covenant. So when you or I trust Christ, our sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. We know that he writes his standards on our heart and he's always with us. That was all placed into this Abrahamic covenant that God amplified throughout history. This covenant is a covenant that we would call a unilateral covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. What a unilateral covenant means is that it is a covenant in which an individual, one individual, takes upon himself the responsibility of fulfilling the agreements to the covenant. That's what happened with Abraham and God. God said, let's, let's have a covenant. Abraham sets the animal pieces aside, leaves a path, and then God puts him to sleep, and God passes through the pieces, meaning this covenant for Abraham's behavior is unconditional. He doesn't have to do anything to perform to receive it. It's, um, it's unconditional. It's eternal, and the responsibility is upon God. God assumes the responsibility to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, which he did when he sent Christ, which he will do when he gives them the possession of the land that he's promised them, and he has given and, and made a blessing. In the, Abrahamic, in the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord has assumed all the responsibility of fulfilling it to, his, to Abraham and his descendants. That's a pretty good deal. You see, here's where we get it right, and then here's where we get it wrong. We get it right when we say 
that the only way you can have an eternal relationship with God is by believing in Christ and what he did at the cross plus what? Plus nothing. We believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. We trust him. We receive eternal life. We don't have to do anything else. We don't have to read our Bible a lot, do a lot of performance, because once we place our faith in him, he gives us eternal life. And so I want to ask you before we move ahead, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you believed that when he died and rose again, he did that for you? And have you trusted him and him alone for your eternal life? Or are you thinking, well, I'm going to trust him. Man, I got a lot more I need. No, you don't. Well, I've got a lot of things I've got to put my shoulder to the... No, you don't. You trust him for eternal life. And then how do you live this life? We're going to see not by hard work, not by living according to the law. We live it by trusting him to do through us and in us all that he's called us to do. But he'll do it. As my friend, uh, mentor, Larry Crabb said in one of his books, the pressure's off. I don't know how many Christians I know or have experienced over the years that are so defeated because they can't do all of this stuff that people have told them to do to try to be a better Christian. And they're just weighted down. And I think what Paul is saying is don't fall for it. That's not how God has set it up to be. Notice um, in verse 16 of chapter, I told you to hold your place there. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah. Chapter 3, notice in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but to offspring, refer, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is the Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Isaac was the near fulfillment, but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And he will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham and consequently to all who are children of Abraham, who have Abraham-like faith through the person and work of Christ. Christ would be the one. The law, verse 17, which was given 400 years later, doesn't invalidate the promise. Look in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The law came in addition to the promise, but not replacing the promise. Look at C in your notes <clears throat> under Roman numeral one. The law given 400, and 400 years later didn't cancel or alter the covenant made with Abraham. Notice verse 18. In verse 18, he says, for if inheritance, this rich relationship that's available with God, comes through the law, it no longer comes by promise. If it comes by your behavior, then it's not a result of you trusting in God's provision. It no longer comes by promise if it comes by the law. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. 
A person shares the life of God by trusting in him, not by one's adherence to the works of the law. Just as Abraham received God's promises by faith, so we receive the promise of eternal life by faith in Christ who is the promised one. That's how we receive eternal life. And then that's how we walk with Christ is by faith. Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. Pleasing God is not the first agenda. Trusting God is the primary agenda. And as we trust him to do in us and through us what he desires to do, guess what we wind up doing? We wind up pleasing him, but it's not the primary reality. I want to tell you that when I was in that early part of my Christian growth in college, I was one of the most discouraged people on earth because I thought I had to do all of this stuff to somehow get me to be who God wanted me to be. And I really thought this so he could love me more. I want to tell you, because of the work of Christ, he cannot love you anymore and he'll never love you any less because he fulfilled the promise. He's the one that came to fulfill the promise and the ultimate promise is the promise that we have life forever with him because of what Jesus did for us when he died and rose again. Remember the last things, one of the last things Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. He paid the price for you. He paid the price for me. He bowed his head. He committed his spirit to the Father. Three days later, he rose. Because he rose, we have the guarantee that he provides eternal life. That's the law and the promise. That's how it fits. It didn't annul. It didn't neg negate this promise he made to Abraham. It came after when the question is, well, what's its place? Look in verses 19 through 22. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. The promise had been made and it was put in place by angels by an either intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God, God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. The Lord intended to, that the law clarify sin and be temporary. Look back in verse 19. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, to expose transgressions, to kind of show us where we're missing the mark so we would be drawn to the provision of Christ until... The offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, when Christ came, the necessity for the law ended because the one who fulfilled the promise was here. And it was no longer necessary to have a system like the law to somehow guide us. Now we had a relationship with God. He said, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, by Moses and the angels 
there in the presence of God helping Moses understand the law. He said, now intermediary applies uh, more than one, but God is one. The law or the Mosaic covenant is a bilateral covenant. Remember, Abrahamic covenant uh, is a... um, is a covenant that is um, for one. It, it, it is a covenant that God establishes with us that he fulfills. It is a unilateral covenant. The covenant of Moses is a bilateral covenant. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, it'll say, if you do this, I will bless you, but if you do this, I will curse you. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I... it depended upon the behavior of the people to show them that they couldn't measure up to God's standard of righteousness and to give them and anticipate and put their trust in a coming Messiah. Notice in verses um, 21 and 22, it says in verse 21, is the law contrary or against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The problem is there is no law that can energize us to have his life. We don't have his life. What we have is our knowledge and recognition of our sin. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The truth is this. The law cannot give life. And therefore, God makes his life available to those who believe in Christ. And I'm going to say it again. If you're here this morning and you're under the mistaken identity that your eternal life rests on how much you go to church, how much of your Bible you read, how much money you give, how many good things you do, you've missed the point. Your eternal life rests upon what Jesus did for you when he died and rose again. And what he wants us to do is to trust him as our Savior. And if you've never done that, or you've been trusting this dual thing of trying to combine the law with faith, drop the law part and just come and trust Jesus. I believe that when you died and rose again, you did that for me. I trust you as my Savior. The truth is, the law cannot give life. And I'm an example. Well, I tried, once I trusted Christ, I tried to really be the person that I think God could love more. And like I said, he couldn't love me any more and he wouldn't love me any less and it took me a while to really understand that. And even today I'll fall back into that trap of trying to somehow work really hard to please God. It's not what he calls us to. He calls us to trust him. Let him do through us what he desires to do. John 15, four and five. You are the vine, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Everyone who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, what? You can do nothing. We abide in him, we trust him, and he grows his character through us so that we can love God with all our hearts, so that we can love one another the way he loves, so that we can reflect his standards, not because of dedicated self-effort, but because of his mercy and his grace. That's the place of the law, not for eternal life, to point us to our need for eternal life. And then finally, look in verses 23 through 25. Now, before faith came, 
We were held captive under the law. In other words, the law was the method by which God kept convincing us that we needed something more than just the law. Imprisoned until com the coming faith would be revealed, the coming faith in the person and work of Christ. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified how? By faith. Listen to me. This is a faith proposition. It's not by our effort. It's not by our work. It's not by anything we bring to the table. We come, as one guy said, as empty-handed beggars. And we receive the bread of life by faith. And then as we trust him because of his eternal life he's given, we depend upon him to express his character through us. We'll get to that in Ephesians 5. The fruit of not self-work, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering. Against such things, he says, there is no law. We trust him to do in us what he chooses to do. The law, notice in B in your notes under Roman numeral 3, not only did it act as a prison to kind of keep us until Christ came, faith in the Messiah came, but the law acted as a harsh guardian, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian that until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He says, but now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Some of your translations say a tutor. Somebody that tells you, no, 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 that's not it. No, you need to do that better. No, no. Here's what he says. The guardian acted like a tutor that demonstrated our need to have a faith relationship with Christ. But when the Christ came, we don't need a tutor anymore. He is the expression of the character of God. Verse 25, one more time says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that's why Paul said, don't put yourself under that legal system that the Judaizers are trying to press you into. And what he would have told me had I been listening as a freshman in college is regular. Don't believe that you can perform enough to get me to love you more. I already love you with eternal love. You can't get me to love you anymore. I won't love you any less. Just depend upon me. I had to kind of work myself out of that. And maybe you're here too. Most discouraged people I know, the most discouraged I was in my Christian life was when I believed I had to carry this heavy load to prove I really loved Jesus. You know what? He doesn't ask me to do that. He asked me to let him carry the load. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your, my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let him do the work. That's what he, he's the only one that can. You want to love your mate the way Christ commands you to? Try gritting your teeth and see how that works. Trust Christ to empower you to love your mate. You want to treat your kids with dignity and respect and raise them up? Try it in your own efforts. They'll break your heart. But trust Christ and let him have them as he already does. 
and let their choices be between him and them and you cheer them on as they make good choices, but you trust him for that. To be a Christian who reflects Christ in this world rather than saying, I'm gonna make a difference for Jesus and I understand the heart of that, but let's do this. God, I'm trusting you to use me in the lives of those I encounter so that they might see my good works and glorify you who's in heaven. Since Christ has come and gives eternal life to all who believe, we no longer need the tutor. We no longer need the guardian. We no longer need the law. It's not that the law is not important. It tells us a lot about the character of God, but not as a yoke to put upon ourselves because he's freed us from that. The law has done its job if you've come to faith in Christ. Here's what I want to leave you with. The Christian life begins with faith in Christ through the grace of God can't earn it, and it continues the same way, faith in Christ through the grace of God. What he wants me to do is not believe that I've got this heavy load of behaviors to do and lift up. What he wants me to do is just trust him. You know, he's already made me in his image. He's already created me to be a new creature in Christ. He's already given me his righteousness. He's already just. He's done that for every one of us that trusted Christ. What he wants to do is us to mature into who he's already made us to be. Not wear ourselves out trying to do something that we think he wants us to do. Now, you say, well, Reggie, that sounds pretty, um, that sounds too easy. And if it was harder, you'd do it. The enemy of our souls is trying to sell us a bill of goods that if we try harder, work harder, keep the law, keep the rules we think God wants us to keep, we can have eternal life or we can live the effective Christian life that pleases God. But it's a failed strategy. Just like my soccer shoes didn't make me any faster or make me a more effective athlete, just like my attempts to do all the things I thought I needed to do to keep the Lord pleased, so sin management does not make us righteous. He already has made us righteous. He just wants us to grow into expressing his character as we depend upon him. The law exposes our need for the Savior. Shall not kill, shall not lie, shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus came and intensified it in the Sermon on the Mount. If a man looks on a woman to lust after, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. If you get angry at a brother and you call him an empty head, you're already guilty of murder. So it's a hard attitude. How do we live up to that? We trust Christ as our Savior and he gives us his righteousness. And then he wants to grow it into our lives as we trust him. The law exposes our need for a Savior and we embrace Christ by trusting him for eternal life and by depending on his indwelling Holy Spirit to mature us into the people he's already made us to be. So I want you to take one thing out. Don't try harder. Trust Jesus to do in you what he's chosen to do. And he will grow you. And he will show his character through you. 
And I want to say the pressure's off. If there are some of you that have been, like I have been, worn out by the demands of a Christian program, let it go and trust Christ to meet your needs and to do through you what he desires to do. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.